and friends, and welcome to a very special edition of Madison Bookbeat, your listener-supported community radio home for Madison authors, topics, book events, and publishers. I'm George Dreckman, filling in for your regular host, Stu Levitan. He's not able to host the show today because he's today's guest. Here to talk about his book, Madison in the 60s, from the very good people at the Wisconsin Historical Society Press. The Monona Terrace Auditorium, designed by Frank Lloyd Wright, civil rights, urban renewal, anti-war protests, the University of Wisconsin, five issues in those 10 years that changed Madison forever. Documenting those issues, along with stories of public schools, highways, transportation, law and disorder, planning and economic development, and other topics is the business that occupies Stu Levitan in this first comprehensive account of Madison's most famous decade. Stu didn't spend the 60s in Madison. He first passed through Madison on a Grateful Dead tour in 1973. Then came for good in August 1975, and the city hasn't been the same. But still, he is uniquely qualified to write about the 60s. As a newspaper reporter for the Capital Times and then the Madison Press Connection in the late 70s, he covered many of the issues and individuals from the 60s. As a county supervisor representing a downtown district in the early to late 80s, he dealt with the legacy of the actions and decisions from that time. And as a longtime member and chair of several city commissions, including the Plan Commission and the Community Development Authority, he knows what it's like to make those kind of decisions. Stu and I first met in uh, 1980 when we both worked at the Capitol. I was working for state senator, then later Congressman Jim Moody, and Stu was working for the powerful Joint Committee for the Review of Administrative Rules. We even had a year playing softball together. In 1983, he gave in to his father's expectations and went to law school. Then in 1987, quit the county board to accept a job as mediator arbitrator for the Wisconsin Employee Relations Commission, implementing the collective bargaining law in the, in the progressive labor tradition of Wisconsin, a law that Scott Walker destroyed. Then when he retired, he got serious about the book, which was published in November of 2018. In addition to being the host and producer of Madison Bookbeat for its first two years, Stu does the weekly Madison in the 60s feature on WORT's Wednesday Night News, for which he has received two first place awards for writing in the last three years from the Milwaukee Press Club. He has also written extensively for local and national publications, including Isthmus, Madison Magazine, and High Times. And he will insist that Bob Dylan is the greatest singer-songwriter since Homer, something that we agree on. It's a pleasure to welcome to his own program, <laughs> Stu Levitan. Good to see you, Stu. Well, thanks for doing this, George. Thanks for playing along. And it's, you know, it's, it's kind of ironic. This is my last show and I'm not the host. Uh, sh should, we, should we tell people about that now or, or hold on and make that announcement at the end? We could do that at the end. Let's do that at the end. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Let's let's talk about because we're here to talk about books. Yeah. And this is this is a, a, a good book. Let me ask you this. I mean, because you weren't here in the 60s. You didn't get your head beat in at the Dow demonstrations or things like that. Why did you write this book? Well, 
it's the 60s were the most important and interesting decade in Madison's history. And nobody else had written a comprehensive account of it. So I figured I would. Now, it's important to understand the book is not an attempt to explain what the 60s meant to Madison or what Madison meant to the 60s. It has a more fundamental purpose because there are a lot of myths and false memories about the 60s. And I wanted to chronicle the reality of the times. And after we agree, I hope, on the facts, then we can talk about what it all meant. Why do you say that the 60s is the most interesting and important decade here in Madison? Well, it's the most important decade because things happened which affect us to this day. Most obviously, urban renewal and the failure to build Monona Terrace, but also the political empowerment of women and Blacks and students, which had not been the case before the 60s. Uh, we, we are still suffering the emotional and physical scars of the early urban renewal program. The failure to build Monona Terrace in its first iteration in the early 60s or a later version in the later 60s affected downtown development and citywide pol politics literally into the 21st century. Uh, we can get into, into those two issues uh, later, but I also want to say a word about the political empowerment of women, and this is in the years before women's liberation becomes a massive movement. Now, the 60s were the first decade to have more than just one or two women making news, and they did it in a new way outside of traditional politics. In the 1940s, the only significant female newsmaker was Ruth Doyle, who some may know as the mother of former Governor Jim Doyle. She was the first woman to represent Madison in the State Assembly in 1948. She later served on the Dane County Board. In 1951, Ethel Brown becomes the first woman elected to the Madison Common Council. Now, there was another woman named Helen Samp on the school board, but she was not a significant player. Ruth Doyle and Ethel Brown are literally the only two women making news in the entire decades of the 40s and 50s. Uh, Ruth Doyle gets elected to the school board in 1964. She continues to be a newsmaker, later becomes its first female president and the namesake of its administration building. She also founds the university's program to recruit and retain black students. But Ruth, Ruth Doyle and Ethel Brown are it until the early 1960s. This is when women named Bortai Scudder and Leah Zeldin become activist leaders, first of the civil rights movement, and then in 1965 of the anti-war movement. Now, a lot of our listeners probably remember Leah Zeldin of Blessed Memory, but may not know that she was the publicity director for the Congress of Racial Equality when it organized a sit-in at the Sears store on East Washington Avenue in 1964, or that she was one of the leaders of the Committee for Direct Action within the Committee to End the War in Vietnam, and was a primary protagonist of a very important anti-war demonstration, the heckling of Senator Edward Kennedy in 1966. Bortai Scudder, who is related by marriage to the revered civil rights leader, Lloyd Barbie, is another fascinating and important woman. She chaired CORE in 1964, and in 1965 was one of the nine people arrested for an action at the Truex Air Force Base. Her later life took a very interesting turn. She ended up an assistant attorney general for the state of Washington. So we've got these activist women 
starting in the in the early mid 60s. Uh, then in 1966, Catherine Clarenbach, mother of former state representative David Clarenbach, is one of the key co-founders of the National Organization of Women. In 1968, Midge Miller does such a great job running Eugene McCarthy's local campaign headquarters. She later gets elected to the assembly. In 1969, university student Marjorie Tabankin puts together not just the program for the Black Revolution Symposium, which leads directly to the Black study strike. She also coordinates the activities of Moratorium Day. And then finally in 1969, we get the second woman on the council, Alicia Ashman, and this is five years after Ethel Brown stepped down. And all these women had a major impact on local and even national news, and among them created a new template for women working inside and outside the system. So in terms of the empowerment of women, the 60s are critically important. And the, the story is the same for students and Blacks, whose first impact becomes as outside activists for civil rights and peace before attaining inside power as elected officials. First, of course, Paul Soglin, then Eugene Parks and others. As to why it's the most interesting decade, we see people who would become enormously important in the decades to come in their formative days, either in college or as young professionals. I think it is inherently interesting that the revered Shirley S. Abrahamson, the first female justice and first female chief justice of the Wisconsin Supreme Court, was a volunteer attorney helping draft our historic fair housing ordinance. Or that another future chief justice, Roland Day, was chair of the Mazin Housing Authority. Future assembly speaker Norm Anderson was a, was a citizen member of the Redevelopment Authority. We see Eugene Parks as a high school student winning an oratory contest before becoming the first black elected to the council. We see Paul Soglin elected to the WSA Student Senate and writing columns for the Daily Cardinal where there were other reporters and editors like Jeff Greenfield and Rita Braver and Walt Bogdanich and Peter Greenberg, people who'd go on to win Pulitzer Prizes. You had campus musicians like Ben Sidron and Tracy Nelson. Uh, even a member of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, Steve Miller. Yet student actors like Daniel J. Travanti, who'd win Emmy Awards. And if all that's not enough, if all that is not enough, Madison was the last place Bob Dylan stayed before he went to New York City for the first time in 1961. So yeah, it was a pretty interesting decade. It was indeed. All that happened, all those personalities, those people who would come in many ways to dominate the city for the next 20 or 30 years. How do you take all that? Is there a way to distill that into a, a single most important event that took place during this time? Because we've got all these people. What, what, what event might have been critical? There's a most important event on campus and a most important event in the city. I'll, I'll address them both. Okay. For the university, clearly the most important event was the Battle of Dow, October 18th, 1967, which in the annals of the anti-war movement is historic as the first time police used tear gas to quell an on-campus disturbance. There were obviously police had used tear gas in other instances, both for anti-war stuff and uh, racial issues. But this was the first time police used tear gas 
on campus in an anti-war demonstration. It also, in one afternoon, radicalized thousands of students who were not involved in the protest, but all of a sudden got hit by all this tear gas as they were changing classes uh, on that Thursday afternoon. It ended the campus careers of the two leading organizer activists, Evan Stark and Bob Cohen. It turned Paul Soglin from a campus politician to a city politician. It also radicalized the police because of the size of the crowd that confronted them and because several of them were seriously injured. Now, a lot more students were sent to the emergency room than police, but they were mainly sent for scalp lacerations that got bloody, but were not really that serious. But there were police who got hit in the face and the throat by bricks, who had bones broken, their larynx crushed. So police chief Wilbur Emery adopts a policy that from then on, he would respond with more force than was necessary so things didn't get out of hand. And that policy, which was adopted internally by the police after Dow, led directly to the Mifflin Street Block Party riot in May 1969 because 30 officers showed up in riot gear to enforce a noise complaint. And the crowd figured, well, you came for a riot. Okay, let's have a riot. And this shows how history happens. And in fact, Dow is the linchpin between two historic events. There was a, a protest in 1966, which I referred to earlier, but the heckling of Senator Edward Kennedy, in which Leah Zeldin and others from the Committee to End the War in Vietnam heckled Edward Kennedy off the stage of the Sock Pavilion so relentlessly that he fled the stage. Now, he wasn't there to give a speech about the war. He was there to give a speech for Pat Lucy running for lieutenant governor in 1966, but they heckled him off the stage. And in response to that, first of all, 8,000 students signed a letter of apology. And secondly, the university passed a rule that said the university had an obligation to allow people who came to speak to speak and would enforce and, and, and would take necessary enforcement actions to make sure people were not obstructed from hearing or giving speeches. It was that rule that Chancellor uh, Sewell cited in calling in the police in October 1967 to clear the, the Commerce Building from the anti-Dow protesters that led to the riot. So we, we have this direct chain from the Kennedy protest in 1966 to Dow in 1967 to the Mifflin Street Block Party in 1969. And this is an example of how history happens. The most important event for the city at large was passage of the referendum to kill the original Monona Terrace in April 1962. If that referendum had not passed, we probably would have built the thing and almost everything about downtown development and city politics literally until the next century would have been different. So as you recall, so much of city politics and downtown development in the 70s and 80s and 90s and in, until Monona Terrace and the Overture Center were built revolved around we need a public auditorium and a convention center. If we had built it in 1960, 61, 62, none of that would have happened. And as we can talk about later, we would have been saddled with an inadequate building. Uh, the second most important citywide action was the failure of the referendum to end urban renewal and abolish the redevelopment authority in April 1964. 
Now, eventually the city would have created something like the Community Development Authority in which I served. But if we had abolished urban renewal in 1964, the urban renewal activity in South Madison, which was a very positive experience, much unlike the triangle, would not have happened. So those two referenda, the passage of one and the failure of the other, are the two most important citywide aspects. There's been a lot of discussion about what happened to the Triangle neighborhood and how negative that was. What took place there and when did it happen? Yeah, the Triangle is the enduring aspect of, of, of city life. A lot of people think it was a terrible thing for the city to do, which it did for a terrible reason and which it did terribly. They are partially right and partially wrong in my opinion. For, for those who are new to the area, what we call the Triangle is the land generally bounded by Park Street, by South Park Street, Regent Street, and West Washington Avenue. This was once the eastern part of the greater Greenbush neighborhood. It was a 60-year-old neighborhood that was intergenerational, interracial, interreligious. This was Madison's melting plot of Italians and Jews and Blacks. But it had inadequate infrastructure. It had bad land use allocation and a certain degree of substandard housing. It was a classic example of a neighborhood literally on the other side of the tracks, just seven blocks away from the Capitol Square. In 1949 and 1954, the federal government passed a housing act and an urban renewal program that starting in the late 50s, city planners decide to use to eliminate blight and open the land for better housing and economic development. So the first question is, was it a reasonable determination on their part to diagnose these 52 acres as blight? And technically the triangle was the second project across West Washington Avenue where the Parkside Apartments are today was the first project that was called the Brittingham. But the, the triangle is the most controversial one because it affected the most people. There were 301 households, 1,155 individuals living on those 52 acres. So the first question is, was it reasonable for the city to call this area blight? And when I say the city, technically it's the redevelopment authority, but shorthand, we'll call it the city. I think it was reasonable to diagnose this area as blight for a couple of reasons. First of all, the land was barely above the water table. It consisted of what, you, what, was, essential, what was originally marshland that uh, a railroad worker named George Pregler had done some ad hoc infill on with ash and stone and garbage in 1900. So we've got substandard land barely above the water table, the sewer mains. We got four inch sewer mains. Those are not adequate for a modern community of thousands of people. Too much of the area is devoted to streets and alleys, often with dangerously blind intersections. South Park Street and West Washington Avenue need to be expanded and that land needs to become from, so, from somewhere. So on a first blush to diagnose this, this acreage as blight, seems reasonable. Moreover, and this is very important, throughout the neighborhood, there were these wildly incompatible uses that were just hostile to residential life. 
There was a meatpacking plant. There were junkyards. There were six taverns, seven liquor stores. Yes, it was great that there was Schwartz's Pharmacy and Troya's Meat Market and the kosher butchers, but to get to them, you had to walk past junkyards and a meatpacking operation. And one single block, the 700 block of Mound Street, had then fronted on West Washington, had the neighborhood house, the most important secular building in the city where all this, where all the neighborhood kids went. It had a Jewish synagogue and it had a junkyard all on that same block. You had a junkyard next to a, a house of worship and the neighborhood house. That is seriously incompatible. There was not a single block in the entire 52 acres that was entirely residential. And furthermore, 35% of the housing was substandard. So project out from that 10 or 20 or 30 years and ask yourself, if not an urban renewal area, then what? What's going to become of the properties that are already substandard? What happens to the junkyards? Are we going to keep this street grid? How is the city going to provide and schedule the comprehensive infrastructure repairs? And remember, this is a community that does not have access to capital. Where is the money going to come from to buy and close the junkyards and do all this other stuff if not from the federal government? And above all these infrastructure and financing questions, there's a deeper, perhaps imponderable, but I think answerable question, succeeding generations were going to assimilate. They had already started to assimilate. As housing discrimination becomes illegal and Jews and Blacks can live anywhere in the city they want, and the Italian children are moving out, does Greenbush even have a future as a cohesive ethnic community? So you add up all those things, and I don't think urban renewal was a terrible thing to do. The problem was we did not do it well, because first of all, these communities were all communities that had already long been victimized by discrimination. The city should have been sensitive to how suspicious the residents would be and taken steps to understand and address that. But they didn't, but we didn't, and the suspicion and resentment festered for now three generations. And to compound the emotional trauma of losing their way of life, the residents were faced with institutional and individual racism that made finding new housing difficult, if not impossible. We didn't adopt the Fair Housing Code until 1963. We started tearing down housing for the Triangle in January 1962. We can talk about how racist the Madison housing market was, but the fact is that when Blacks were forced to move from the Triangle, there were very few neighborhoods to which they could move. The city did not open public housing until January 1965, three years after it started tearing down the bush. It opened 140 units three years after it had displaced, displaced 301 households with 1,150 residents. So the, the entire relocation effort was a terrible failure. The entire outreach effort to try and explain and work with the neighborhood was a terrible effort. I like to say the early urban renewal program is a physical manifestation of the line from T.S. Eliot that 
between the idea and the reality, between the motion and the act, falls the shadow. We are, as a society, as a country, we are plagued with this. I always, I, you know, throw it back to Robert Moses in New York, that we can do some great things physically when we do some of those things physically that need to be changed. We ignore the cultural aspects of what we're going to do. It, it, it's, it's shocking. I've read the entire federal record, all the correspondence, all the reports, and not once does the federal government, do any of the planners, either for the city or the federal government, acknowledge the concept of community. They talk about streets and sewers, and they never talk about the people. And you can say, well, there's no overt hostility, but being oblivious is a form of hostility and aggression. And it's just... It's, it's startling to, to read and see just how blind we were to the fact that this was a cohesive community that was about to have its entire way of life destroyed. And however well-reasoned the purpose for doing the urban renewal was, it was done poorly. And, and that's, that's on the redevelopment authority and that's on the city. Did, uh these actions, this displacement, uh, did that, was that like a precursor of the, uh, what you mentioned, the uh, Fair Housing Code? It, it was not a precursor in terms of a cause and effect thing, but just, just to give people a, a sense of what civil rights was like in Madison as the decade opens, Madison has 126,706 residents, 1,489 are non-white. So that's, we're dealing with a very small minority and they live, and 76% of the 200 black households are concentrated in just two wards, the Triangle Greenbush area and South Madison. There, the city has 21 wards, eight of them are all white. Think about there, there are eight wards in the city of Madison in which no non-whites lived. There are 8,595 rental units. Black Madisonians have access to less to about 2,300. There are more than 10,000 households houses for sale. Blacks can buy only 1,180. Blacks have access to 24% of the housing units throughout the city. Housing discrimination is legal. There's no federal fair housing law. There's no state fair housing law. Now, in 1947, the Supreme Court had made restrictive covenants unenforceable in a court of law, but they were still on the deeds. And there was still gentlemen's agreements among realtors that there are neighborhoods wherein we do not show blacks housing. One of the most active women opposing the Triangle was a woman named Fran Ramika, who lived in Crestwood, where, of course, um, Carson Gully had his own issues trying to trying to move in the 1950s. But Fran Ramika was a realtor and she was disciplined in the late 1940s for selling a rooming house in a white neighborhood to a black buyer because the Board of Realtors disciplined realtors who violated the code of ethics by selling household by selling 
realty to people who would not be welcome in the neighborhood. Now get your head around that. The board of realtors, disciplined realtors, and this isn't just in Madison, this is around the country, but the board of realtors, disciplined realtors who sold realty to black buyers in white neighborhoods. That's the reality. So that's so when we start tearing down houses, some of which are owned by blacks or occupied by blacks on the triangle in 1962, they're moving to South Madison or I mean, they're moving to South Madison, which then becomes the next urban renewal district. The history of the civil rights movement in Madison is very interesting. As I said, Madison does not have a large black population at the time. So it's a number of other factors that are propelling civil rights into becoming one of the most important issues, if not the most important issue throughout the decade. There are a number of streams that combine to form the great river of the civil rights movement in Madison. There are the Black Mothers of South Madison. There is a small group of Black professionals who are leading the NAACP, men like Odell Taliaferro and Lloyd Barbie, who goes on to become a state representative from Milwaukee, Marshall Colston. There are a number of West Side liberals, and there is a critical mass of white leftist students, many of them socialists, a disproportionate number of them non-resident Jews who are propelling the civil rights movement on campus. And civil rights activism begins right at the beginning of the decade. The sit-in movement in the South to protest segregation at lunch counters like Woolworths and Kresge's and so on begins February 1st, 1960. By the end of the month, there are picketing demonstrations in Madison in support of that movement. There, February 27th, there are pickets around the Woolworths on the Capitol Square, and that goes on throughout the winter and into the summer. You, you have a campus SNCC organization, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. You have, you have a chapter of the Congress of Racial Equality in 1964. So there's a great deal of ferment, great deal of civil rights movement that's being led by a number of different forces on and it's, it's, it's especially active on campus. You've got students who are risking their lives as freedom writers. Andrew Goodman, who was one of the three civil rights leaders who was killed during Freedom Summer, trying to register Blacks in the Deep South, had been a student at the University of Wisconsin. You had, so you had Freedom Riders, you had people who were going South for voter registration drives, and then you had people doing uh, things in Madison. I spoke about the racism in housing. It's also important to understand the terrible racism in employment. In 1964, the State Industrial Commission did a survey that showed the 10 largest firms in Madison had a total payroll of 8,739 people, but employed only 48 Blacks. 48 Black employees out of close to 9,000. American Family Insurance, 557 employees, no Blacks. Gisholt, 1,093 employees, 11 Blacks. Madison Kip, 367 employees, no Blacks. Madison Gas and Electric, 384 employees, no Blacks. Oscar Meyer, 
3,723 employees, 31 of them black. That's why you start getting, in addition to the housing activism and the housing demonstrations, you get employment demonstrations. That's why you get a sit-in. The first disruptive protest of the 1960s was a sit-in at the Sears on East Washington Avenue in 1964 to demand the hiring of more Blacks. It ultimately was successful. If you look at things in the aggregate, you can make a case that civil rights was the most important issue in Madison over the totality of the 60s. Now, in 1960, 61, and 62, the auditorium was the most important issue. Civil rights was the most important issue in 1963 and 1968. Urban renewal was the most important issue in 1964. That's when we almost abolished it. The protest movement is the most important issue in 65, 66, 67, civil rights in 68, and the UW in 69, primarily because of the Black Studies strike on campus, which also could be classified as a civil rights issue. So as you look over the totality of the decade, civil rights was never less than the third most important issue. The auditorium would fade. Urban renewal would fade. Uh, the the anti-war protest movement didn't get, didn't begin until the mid-decade. But civil rights was always the first or second or third most important issue. So you could say over the totality of the decade, it was the most important issue. You're listening to Madison Bookbeat on WORT. I'm George Dreckman, who is uh, sitting in for our normal host, Stu Levitan, who is our guest today. And we're discussing uh, Stu's book, Madison in the 60s. We always think about the progressive side of Madison. But you, with the, with the case of the uh, Monona Terrace, uh, some civil rights things, there's some obstructionism. There's kind of a, a, an undercurrent, or maybe not even an undercurrent, maybe a dominating current of obstructionism in this city during the 60s. There even was a group of people whom the Capital Times called the obstructionists. And, th and this gets us to Monona Terrace. And re remember, you know, the, the, the 60s had several generations. The early 60s were in large part the very late 50s. And, and people who had been powerful in the 50s remained powerful in the, 19, in the early 1960s. And the obstructionists is, this is the group of a small group of willful men acting for various reasons, using a, a variety of means, including litigation and legislation and public relations, who essentially overturned a public referendum to have Frank Lloyd Wright build Monona Terrace and invalidated that contract by delaying the project long enough that its cost assumptions became invalid, it was too expensive, and abandoned it. Now, some of them opposed it because of Frank Lloyd Wright's politics, some because of his scandalous personal life, some because as a businessman, he was, let's face it, a deadbeat. But, <laughs> but the irony is, and historians love irony, is they did, they killed Monona Terrace for what I consider bad reasons, but I believe their action had a good result because think about this. Monona Terrace contained theaters for 2,300 and 1,000 and an art museum and exhibition space. The primary use of Overture Center for the Arts 
and the current Monona Terrace Community and Convention Center. If Monona Terrace had been built, it is highly unlikely that Jerry Frouchy would have given $200 million for overture. The design of 1960 provided only 45% of the exhibition space in the current Community and Convention Center without any ability to expand. It also would have given far too prominence, too much prominence to parking ramps. Now, it would have been nice to say that we had an authentic Frank Lloyd Wright designed auditorium all those years instead of a waterfront surface parking lot, but I think we have been better served for having Overture Center and Monona Terrace Community and Convention Center than we would have had by having the original Monona Terrace. So the obstructionists, they were successful, um, but I think they did us a favor. The right result for the wrong reason. Yeah. Yeah. But then, then that, it seems to me, I just recall there, there, are, there is, and I'm sure it's true of any community, that there is people who will oppose anything that's different. And yeah. Madison, while we're fortunate to have people who like things, like to move for change, there's some people who aren't always on the, uh, on the progressive side. You're listening to uh, a discussion about the history of our city on BookBeat on WORT here in Madison. And our guest is the usual host of the program, Stu Levitan, and we're discussing his book, Madison in the 60s, which is published by the Wisconsin Historical Society Press. We're looking at this decade, what was the, something that surprised you about all this stuff as you were looking at things? The degree of political involvement by the general public. You had council meetings where you'd get hundreds of people to attend. There was a public hearing on, on whether or not to go to referendum on Monona Terrace that they moved to the auditorium at the old Central High. A thousand people sat through a six-hour public hearing just to listen to the debate. And in, in the city at the time was half the size, was less than half the size it is today. So that would be proportionally like filling the Overture Center, putting 2,000 people in the Overture Center for six hours to listen to a public debate. And I assure you, the seats in the old Central High Auditorium were not as comfortable as the seats in the Overture Center today. The other thing that surprised me and somewhat of a disappointment, and this may be controversial, but the, the anti-war protest movement, I don't know what its impact was nationally. I don't know how much it affected the prosecution of the war or, or affected the decision makers in Washington. It certainly got them to do all sorts of strange things. I don't know that it, sh it shortened the war, which went on until 1975, but there was a clear dialectic locally of protest, resistance to the protest, escalation of the protest, repression, that I think ultimately was counterproductive, that you had statewide legislation cracking down, you know, making sure that if you were arrested for certain demonstrations, you were suspended or expelled from the university. You couldn't get a job with the university. There, the regents did things that that were restrictive and repressive. And every time the protester did something, the empire struck back because that's what empires do. And as I say, I'm not sure what effect it had nationally, but locally it 
brought down countermeasures that were restrictive and repressive. It's somewhat similar to what we're seeing now. Very much so. The, the protests, uh, the Black Lives Matter movement, things like that. And then you're getting that now you're starting to see, uh, you know, we talked about those police reform and now there's blowback. The, you know, um, history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. <laughs> and yeah, yeah when, when, I, when I see these debates about disrupting speakers on campus, I say, wait a minute, we went through this 50 years ago. The regents passed a rule. There are administrative rules about that. Why, why are we having this debate again? And, you know, when we talk about, you know, racism on campus, there are people t- today, uh, Professor Kantowitz, I know, has, did great work, uh, you know, a year or two ago on the legacy of the Ku Klux Klan. And there are other people doing work today, but it's like, you know, the Public History Project is doing great work on, uh, you know, Casey Luchner-Boucher is doing great work. But these are, these are issues that, okay, I've seen this movie. But did the, uh, I know that the anti-war movement didn't, I agree with you that it didn't really stop the war, but what impact then did the activism of those people here in Madison, did they carry that activism into local uh, work, local actions? Well, certainly Paul Soglin did. I mean, the, Mm -hmm. the, the two, early leaders of the anti-war movement who Evan Stark and Bob Cohen were gone after Dow. So, so they, they were eliminated. But, but here's an important point. The vast majority of the early anti-war activists, the early peace activists came directly out of the civil rights movement. And 1965 is the fulcrum on which, on which civil rights fades as the primary issue and the war becomes the primary issue. The in February 1965, President Johnson starts bombing North Vietnam. In the summer of 1965, President Johnson signs the Voting Rights Act. The, the adoption of the Voting Rights Act caps that first generation of the civil rights movement, and the bombing begins the first generation of the serious anti-war movement. So 65 is when people like Bortai Scudder and Evan Stark and Bob Cohen and Leah Zeldin leave the Congress of Racial Equality and move into the committee to end the war in Vietnam. That, that's a very important point to, to understand the relationship of the early anti-war movement to the, and the early peace movement to the civil rights movement. Soglin was treasurer of campus SNCC when he was a sophomore. So all the, all the anti-war people, almost all the anti-war people come out of uh, the civil rights movement. Soglin certainly continues his anti-war activism into local government. Gene Parks does. And starting in the 1970s, then you, get, then you really get students exerting themselves in local politics. And uh, I haven't done the full research on the 70s, so I don't know how many of them will have come out of the anti-war movement. But certainly the, the energy and the activism of those anti-war days carries through into local politics. For many of us in Madison, you know, uh, you and I both came here uh, around the same time. You've been here a little longer, but for us, uh, the term, uh, the the word mayor means Paul Soglin. But during the 60s, Paul Soglin wasn't mayor. We had some different mayors during that period. Can you tell us something about who was in charge of the city back then? Yeah, we had four, four very distinct 
individuals. The, the first mayor was Ivan Nestigan. Ivan Nestigan was elected in 1956 in a special election after then-Mayor George Forster quit to become city manager of Janesville. What does that say about the city? <laughs> <laughs> um, he, was, he was then elected he was reelected and then elected without opposition. Think about that. He was elected to his third term unopposed, a mayor of Madison going unopposed. He was also about to be elected unopposed in April 1961 when he's appointed uh, deputy secretary of health, education and welfare in the Kennedy administration and, and leaves town on very short notice. And he is succeeded by Henry Reynolds of the Reynolds trucking firm. Henry Reynolds had been on the council in 1947 and late 40s, uh, was council president. Uh, he, he made his bones as the vice president of what was called the Citizens Realistic Auditorium Association. This was the citizens group dedicated to killing Monona Terrace. Ivan Nestigan's main goal in office was to build Monona Terrace. He's the one who signed the contract with Frank Lloyd Wright. He's the one who's pushing, pushing, pushing on Monona Terrace. Henry Reynolds runs in 1961 against Ivan Nestigan's administrative assistant, Bob Knuckles, on a campaign of killing Monona Terrace. Unfortunately for Bob Knuckles, the bids to build Monona Terrace come in the same night of the primary. They're wildly over budget. It's clear we can't build the thing. Henry Reynolds sweeps to victory and the following April pushes through a referendum to kill Monona Terrace. So Henry Reynolds kills Monona Terrace. Henry Reynolds pushes through the Monona Causeway, which the Capital Times opposed because they thought it was a way to make it easier to build the auditorium at Olin Park. So Henry Reynolds pushes through Monona Causeway, which we now call John Nolan Drive. He pushes through parking ramps. And Henry Reynolds is the one who casts the deciding vote to enact the Fair Housing Code. Henry Reynolds pushed through the first public housing. So, you know, I have to acknowledge that had I been here and been 21 years old, I would not have ever voted for Henry Reynolds because he was always the, or, oh, he probably also didn't even live in Madison. His main residence was in the town of Westport. So the Capital Times called him the Squire of Westport. The, resi the, the, the address he gave us of his residence was like a storage area for the Reynolds Trucking Company. It was where his grandmother had lived when she founded the company in the 1880s. And they had all these you know, equipment in, in the backyard. But that's, that's the address he gave. Um, I would never have voted for Henry Reynolds, but he was by far the most successful mayor of the 1960s. He was followed by the quintessential liberal Otto Feske, who had terrible timing because Otto Feske comes into office in 1965, just when the anti-war movement is heating up, just when the, the federal budget is starting to be diverted from butter to guns. And Otto Feske cuts the ribbons on all the things that Henry Reynolds actually built. But Otto was stymied trying to move Monona Terrace forward. He, he, the budget was way out of whack. One year, the city didn't even end the year with a budget. The city ended the year without an adopted budget. So, so things are falling apart. The students are going wild in the streets. Um, Otto, 
Otto's term, Otto's two terms from 1965 to 1969, I hate to say it, were not successful. He's succeeded by Bill Dyke. So you see this ping pong. We see liberal Ivan Nestigan succeeded by business conservative Henry Reynolds, succeeded by government liberal Otto Feske, conceded by arch conservative Bill Dyke. Bill Dyke is the guy who, under whom the Mifflin Street Block Party riot happens. Bill Dyke is the guy who really is known for being a hard-edged law and order guy. Ironically, Bill, it was the public, it was the police and fire commission which Bill Dyke appointed, which hired David Cooper to be Madison's Gandhi-loving, Martin Luther King-loving, peace-loving police chief. Now, everyone assumes that David Cooper was hired by Paul Soglin. That is not the case. David Cooper was essentially hired by Bill Dyke because he was hired by the Police and Fire Commission that Bill Dyke appointed. But that's a, that's a thumbnail that's sketch of, of the four mayors who served during the 60s. Otto Feske was not necessarily a successful mayor, but he lived to be in the, into his 80s and he died like 2007 or something. And he was a lovely man. He, he was a wonderful, oh, yeah. he, was, he was county clerk for many years. And, and then he was Bob Kastenmeier's home secretary. So Otto Feske was a wonderful public servant and, and a yeah. decent, lovely man. But on the record, he was not as successful a mayor, certainly as Henry Reynolds. But he gets a park. Which, oh yeah, but it's, others, but, it's, but, but it's but it's it's in the county. It's not in the city. Yeah. <laughs> so you know, looking at this, you I, I see a lot of the things that that you post related to the work you do on the Wednesday program and on the on the news, the Madison yeah. history stuff, and I am deep in my soul somewhere. I'm a process geek, and I see what you're doing, but what. How do you go about writing a book like this? And how do you figure out, out of all the reams and reams of stuff, how do you figure out what goes in and what stays out? Well, well, first, you gather the data. And I just loved the research process. I Read every day, I've read every day's paper, or at least scrolled through the microfilm of every day's paper of the State Journal and the Capital Times and the Daily Cardinal, and for the few months of the 60s that it published, the Badger Herald. Then I went to the archives and read documents and, and oral histories and looked at photographs. And let me say this about the newspapers people today, people who only know the Capital Times and the State Journal of the last few years would be gobsmacked at what those papers were like in the 60s. They were big, fat, beautiful newspapers with reams and reams and reams of information. They would print whole speeches. They would print whole documents. They would print whole testimony. They would print 20 inches on, here's what the plan commission has before tonight. And then 25 inches on, here's what the plan commission did last night. Today, we get a tweet. The historians of the future are not going to be able to write the history of, of today that I was able to write the history of then. The other, also, there were great reporters. I, I mentioned some of them, but just, you know, they, they were so good. And except for one or two issues, they were 
you could trust them. I mean, you knew that, that the State Journal and the Cap Times both had an attitude on Monona Terrace and the Causeway and the protest movement. But when um, John Newhouse wrote about this development or John Patrick Hunter wrote about that, that council meeting or Dave Zwiefel wrote something or uh, uh, George Mitchell wrote something, it was trustworthy. I, I could count on those quotes being accurate. I could count on their account being accurate. And it was just an absolute joy to read those newspapers. Now, I ended up with 276 gigs of data. I ended up with 117,000 clippings, which uh, here's an announcement. I'm donating to the Madison Public Library uh, for a resource for other people to come in and review. But yeah, that's that's a lot of data. That's when the former journalist in me kicks in. That's when I say, okay, what are the stories that people today would understand? What are the issues that people today would think are interesting? Who are the personalities that people might have a, a, a fair recollection of who, who works? Oh, that's why that person is important. Oh, I recognize that name. Or, oh, that's where that issue started. That issue that I'm living with today that's where it started. Oh, that's interesting. I mean, I, I what I tried to do was bring a, an historian's approach to research and a journalist's approach to writing to give give the punchiness and, and give the interest. And that's frankly where being on the radio helped. I used to write really long sentences. I read too much Proust as a child. But, <laughs> but, you know, after, after a couple of years of radio, you realize, oh no, short punchy sentences with active verbs, with hard sounding consonants, and you get into a rhythm of the writing. And I think being on the radio really improved my writing. So as I say, a historian's approach to research, a journalist's approach to writing. The other thing journalists engage in is interviewing. Yeah. Were you able to interview people or did you, you know, did you stick with a documentary approach? For the most part, I stuck with a documentary approach, except I would write, I would, tr I would try and have people, I would ask people to fact check it, to fact check things. If I wrote an account of a demonstration, I wrote an account of the Kennedy demonstration, I sent it to people who were there. I, you know, I was in contact with Evan Stark and people I said, okay, Evan, does this ring true? As I say, there are a lot of memories that that if you just give people an open-ended thing, uh, you're not sure where it's going to go. Frankly, I, I think there are people I should have interviewed and did not. I should have done a better job of reaching out to the leaders of the Black Studies strike, like John Felder and some others. Um, I wrote that primarily from uh, documents and, and accounts and oral histories. I should have done a better job trying to do new interviews um, with those with, with, uh, on some subjects. Um, I, I did fact check things. Let me say something about, about the Black Studies strike. Let me say something about, about protests in general, both the most successful and the least successful. Because the Black Studies strike was the most successful political protest of the decade. Now, it wasn't an anti-war protest, and you could call it, it was essentially a civil rights protest for Blacks to have... Uh, more blacks on campus to have more black courses on campus to have a black to have an afro-american studies department to have more black teachers it was essentially the only demonstration the only ongoing protest that succeeded it didn't succeed in everything it wanted 
but it the black study strike of February 1969 is the direct proximate cause of why the University of Wisconsin created the Afro American uh, departmental major. That's it, end of story. I mean, without that black study strike, there's no BA and BS program created when it was on this campus. So it is the most successful protest of the 60s. The least successful protest of the 60s I've already referred to was the Kennedy demonstration. It was counterproductive and it led to further restrictions and repressions that, as I say, ultimately led to the, um, the Mifflin Street Block Party riot. The, the Afro-American studies thing, uh, this is, uh, to me, this, it's such a rich history uh, that is, uh, to me, it's American history, but it's such a rich part of our country's history that had, I think, had we not had protests like that pushing for the expansion of these programs or the, or the starting of these programs, so much of this might, uh, you know, might have been lost. I mean, we would have been left with, uh, you know, John Hope Franklin and maybe not even Henry Louis Gates, who knows? Yeah. So, so these things really got things going. Yeah. The, the, the black study strike is a, is classic. And it's also a very important example of a demonstration in which blacks retained leadership. They're obviously, I mean, when you've got several thousand students in the streets and blocking access to buildings, most of them are white. Most, most of the bodies on the line were organized by SDS and were white students. But the leadership of the strike, um, were, were, were all black students, a couple of white advisors, a couple of white were, were you know, close to the room, but it was what they called the Wapenduzi Weyusi, which is sort of Swahili, Swahili more and less for black agitators. And it was all an outgrowth of, of an um, encounter at the black study strike of uh, I mean, sorry, at the, at the Black uh, Symposium of February 1969, um, a, a professor from San Francisco State named Nathan Hare, who was engaged in his own attempt to create a Black Studies program at San Francisco State and was being stymied by S.I. Hayakawa, a name who would come, who would end up yes. in the United States Senate because of his role cracking down. Um, so, and again, th th this just highlights once again the importance of the University of Wisconsin. The state of the state government, other than for, you know, the real, you know, real estate value, the state government is irrelevant to the day-to-day -day life in Madison. The most important thing in the city of Madison is the University of Wisconsin, day in, day out, year in, year out, and but for intellectual, um, cultural, social, economic, um, really. It, and, and so it always amuses me when people use the state capitol as, as the iconic image, you know, the Capitol Dome as, as the icon representing the city of Madison, they should use Bascom Hall. They should use, you know, or Camp Randall. I mean, that's why I've got Camp Randall on the cover of the book. Now, uh, we talked about uh, the students yeah. and what they did uh, and the importance of the university. What Were there faculty who were playing major roles and things in the civic life of Madison? There were faculty and, excuse me for using this phrase, there were faculty wives. Okay. Shirley S. Abrahamson was a faculty wife. 
She was an attorney, but she was also a faculty wife. Virginia Hart was a faculty wife, and she was important in a number of human rights and employment activities. Midge Miller was a faculty wife. Uh, you had some faculty like uh, John Marks from the engineering department on the city council. You had uh, certainly you, you had um, Henry Hart was important in, in peace activism. Joe Elder was important. Uh, you, you, you had faculty who were important, but in terms of impacting the city, I would say faculty wives had a greater impact than, than actual faculty. You're listening to Madison Bookbeat on WORT. I'm George Dreckman, who is uh, sitting in for our normal host, Stu Levitan, who is our guest today and we're discussing uh, Stu's book Madison in the 60s and uh, it's been uh, uh, an interesting discussion uh, to say the least because there's so much about our past that gets romanticized but we lose track of what really happened and I think your approach here about digging through the newspapers dives more at fact than at remembrance. Yeah, because whether intentionally or not, there are a lot of false memories that arise over, over, over years. And there are a lot of myths. And if you read enough primary sources and can triangulate, okay, they're coming at it from this angle, they're, okay, this is what happened. You know, once you establish, okay, this is what happened, now we can talk about you know, what it all meant. You know, people, I don't think people ever today stop and think, okay, what was Madison like as the decade opens? What, what's the physical reality of Madison in 1960? You know, they, they, in, they intuit, well, it's smaller, obviously, but do they figure, okay, we're close to 80 square miles today. In 1960, it was 39 square miles. That's how much annexation we've done over the years since. We have 270,000 people today. In 1960, there were 126,000. You know, Madison, west side of Madison was farmland. The east side was Blooming Grove and uh, town of Monona, village of Monona. Urban renewal in 1960 was just getting started. The Greenbush neighborhood was still intact. There was no causeway across Monona Bay until 1967. People take that for granted, but think about that. Until 1967, to come to Madison from the south or the southwest, you drove up Park Street and up West Washington Avenue. And this is a time when the railroad terminal, especially freight trains, were still very active. You had trains stopping traffic on West Washington Avenue every hour, all day. And this is the only way to get to South Madison. It's not until 1967 that the causeway opens. The entire length of University Avenue was a two-way thoroughfare. It doesn't become one way until 1967. Inbound traffic doesn't even connect to West Johnson Street. State Street is crowded with cars from the square to Park Street. So just the physical reality is different. The whole sense of public involvement is different. I mentioned the, the huge attendance at um, public hearings and, and council meetings. The basic mechanics of city government are different. Uh, when the city 
when the decade began, the city did not have a director of finance. It did not have a director of public works or transportation. The mayor had a single administrative assistant. Think about that. The mayor of the city of Madison has a single administrative assistant. And despite that modest staff support, the mayors serve routinely. They chaired the plan commission. They chaired the board of estimates. They chaired the auditorium committee. I mean, they actually were there for the meetings and ran the meetings. The mayors today, they, they run the board of estimates, but not the plan commission or, the, or anything else. Uh, city employees sat on bodies that had oversight of them. The city engineer and the building inspector were voting members of the plan commission. Think about that. I mean, yeah. the plan commission like oversees the city inspect, the engineer and the building inspector. The common council met as a thing called the committee of the whole on Tuesdays. And that's when they heard from the staff and the public and made recommendations that the council voted on on Thursday. Uh, the council had a very archaic approach to public access. The city held committee and official meetings in restaurants and hotels. The full council sometimes even met in, in restaurants. The school board held meetings in members' homes. Think about this. You had to go to Diney Mansfield's house to see a school board meeting. And until Ruth Doyle demanded it, they didn't even distribute agendas before the meetings and the school board. The school, the, the Madison Municipal School District was created in 1971. Before that, the schools were the Madison Public Schools and they were division of city government. The council controlled the school budget. The school board could not even set its own budget. It couldn't levy taxes. It couldn't schedule bond issues and it was severely constrained in its spending choices. So you have all these different, and you know, just these structural functional differences that, that first of all, I had to get my head around in order to try and explain to a modern readership what was going on in a system that is like almost the federal, you know, talking about the, it would be like explaining today to somebody about the life under the Articles of Confederation. Well, what, we, it sounds like small town government. It, it, it was. It, it, it was. Yeah. Yeah. Let me let me ask you the uh, classic question to me from the New York Times review of books when they run author interviews. The one question they like to ask at the end is if you could pick some people from this era that you would uh, sit down to dinner with. Uh, who would you choose. And I'm not going to say four. I'm going to say you could you could have a whole smorgasbord as far as I'm concerned. Well, but who would you have? The big unanswered question in my mind is why Henry Reynolds was one of the obstructionists. I don't know whether it was because as a businessman he thought Wright was a deadbeat. Whether it was because he thought it should be at Olin Park. Was it, was it because he disliked? Writes politics. Uh, I would like to know why Henry Reynolds was was such a an obstructionist. I'd like to talk to George Kroll, who was who who was one of the guys running all the undercover cops. I'd like to I'd like to talk to George Kroll and Herman Thomas, who was the cop who ran George Kroll. I'd like to talk about their take on the protest movement and and the and some of their activities. I'd love to talk to Shirley Abrahamson again. 
Oh, I'd like to talk to Norm Anderson, who was on the early Madison Redevelopment Authority and, and get his take on those early days and, and what he thought they did right and what he thought they did wrong. Um, because, you know, he turned out to be, you know, a, a, an exemplary public servant and a great speaker of the assembly. And I'd like to know, you know, what he thought about, about those days. Um, I always like talking to Paul Soglin. He's always interesting and, and full of insights. Oh, I'd, Marjorie Tabankin. I'd love to talk to Marjorie Tabankin, who, I mean, think about this, this one young college student put together both the Black Symposium program and the program for Moratorium Day. And, you know, Marjorie Tabankin ends up running Barbara Streisand's Political Action Committee and, and being elected, you know, president of the National Student Association. So, you know, she'd be wonderful. I'd like to talk to Ed Garvey. Ed, Ed Garvey was president of the Wisconsin Student Association and then president of the National Student Association at a time that the CIA was secretly funding the NSA. So I'd like to talk to Ed Garvey about you know what he knew at the time you know when he was uh in in the nsa there are a lot of people i'd like to yeah talk to. that'd be great i later interviewed garvey when he was here doing a presentation when he was head of the national football league players association i interviewed him for the milwaukee sentinel as a stringer but yeah garvey was a fascinating fascinating uh, uh lengthy career I'd like to talk to, to Willie Edwards and Liberty Edwards and um, John Felder and the others from the Black Studies Strike about what I missed in, in that account. Um, but, you know, I can't talk to those yeah. people. So every once yeah. in a while, I just, I just, you know, leaf through the book and say, oh, yeah, that was, that's an interesting story. So this is something you can decide to drop in or edit out. But I was going to say the one thing we haven't talked about was the, you know, you and I are both, uh, we're not rabid sports fans, but we're followers of, of sports. And during that period, <laughs> Wisconsin was known for pretty horrible teams. Well, well, at the end, but oh, at the at beginning, the end, yeah, at the beginning, we had, we had Rose Bowls, we had Pat Richter, we had all, we had an All-American in Pat Richter. We had we had future NFL players like Richter and and John Bakken and, and some of these other guys and Vander you know, Kellen, yeah, but Vander Kellen and you know so we and we had some good basketball players. We had adequate basketball teams. We almost had a world famous basketball coach, but Bobby right. Knight <laughs> turned us down. We were about to hire Bobby Knight, but Matt Palmer got the scoop and put in the cap times and Bobby Knight got so annoyed that that it was public before he told his superiors at Army where he was coaching then that he threw a hissy fit and and turned the job down for which we are probably very thankful. We, we had the beginning of, of, you know, Badger Bob. Badger Bob came to uh, coach hockey here. But yes, in the late 90s, we went to the Rose Bowl in the mid 60s, but then we had a couple, we had some years where Milt Brune was, you know, five and six and five and, and the fa and the alumni pushed him out and they hired John Coda, who was Henry Reynolds son-in-law, which is why, which is why the white players on the football team got jobs at Reynolds trucking while the black players on the football team had to go to work on the line at Oscar Meyer because the football coach was Henry Reynolds son-in-law. John Cota was, 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 had been a, a star quarterback for the Badgers in the late 50s. He was not a successful coach, 
went winless over his last two years and was finally pushed out and uh, replaced in 1969. And that's about when we hired Elroy Hirsch, uh, got him to come back and be the athletic director. But yeah, the the athletic program was not the highlight of of our of life on campus in the 60s. Th- this was a constant issue for me was how much of a campus event or campus life was related just to the campus and how much also impacted the city. And I tried to draw the, the line that if it was something that people off campus would be affected by or interested in. It, it got in the book. If it was a panty raid that, that brought thousands of students to State Street and started you know, damaging uh, lights in the state capitol, or, or it was the Black Study strike that brought the National Guard to town, or it was you know, Joan Baez coming on campus, or you know, some other musician or, or entertainer. That got in the book, but if it was, you know, a purely academic thing, and and sports is one of those things. Sports affected the city at large. You know, three hours ago, we were watching the Badger basketball game because we care about that. Oh, and the housing, the campus housing issue was of serious impact. Now, I'm I'm working on a book that covers the period of the 40s and the 50s, and the lack of campus housing for the thousands of students, that's a serious citywide issue. But I mean, so that's the line I tried to draw. Did it affect the city at large or just the, just the campus? Having dug through uh, all this history, what would you say were the, was the best thing that happened during this period and the worst thing that happened during this period? Well, the best thing was the historic adoption of the Fair Housing Code. This was more than a year before... Milwaukee had its, it, it, was, it was before the state of Wisconsin. It was several years before the Fair Housing Act, the Federal Fair Housing Act was amended. Wisconsin, Madison made history. Madison had the first fair housing code in the state of Wisconsin in December, 1963, and it had an immediate impact. It enabled blacks to move out of the bush, out of South Madison, out of just those three or four wards where they were and live anywhere in the city. And you could see immediately the demographics of the city change. Uh, so, so that was the best thing. Uh, the worst thing we did was the administration of the early urban renewal program. It got better from the mid to the late sixties. We learned the lessons. And when Saul Levin became in charge and attention focused on South Madison, we did not do the kind of clear-cutting bulldozer project that we did on the Triangle. We did house-by-house renovation, restoration. Okay, that one's got to be replaced, but it was a much more nuanced, a much more intelligent and community-friendly program. So the early program was the worst thing. The later program uh, got much better. It's good when you can learn from your mistakes. Yeah. Yeah. Otherwise, you're going to repeat them. (laughs) There's no question. Well, Stuart, uh, thank you so much uh, for sharing with us on BookBeat uh, some stories and insights on your book, Madison in the 60s, which is, again, published by the Wisconsin Historical Society Press. Thank you, George. This has been a lot of fun. And now I know what it's like to be on the other side of the process to to be a guest. 
And George, I think now's the time that we should let the people know why this has been my last show as the host. That's because I am under contract with the University of Wisconsin Press to write Madison, the Illustrated Sesquicentennial History, Volume 2, 1932 to 2006, and am so deep into research that, frankly, I have to be spending 50, 60, 70 hours a week doing the microfilm and the scanning, and I just don't have the time to give the show the attention it needs on a weekly basis. So we are taking a page from such great WORT shows as her turn in Pan Africa and setting up a Madison Bookbeat collective with rotating hosts. George Dreckman will take the first week of the month. Angela Trudell Vasquez, the Madison Poet Laureate, and Devin Trudell will take the third week. I'll take the fourth and fifth weeks, and the second week is yet to be announced. So, George Dreckman will be in this seat next week. And, George, who's your guest going to be? Well, I am going to be staying in my sweet spot and talk about U.S. history, and I'm going to be fortunate to have as my guest UW-Madison professor Stephen Krantowitz, and we're going to talk about two of his books. One is More Than Freedom, which is a story about uh, blacks, free blacks in Philadelphia, in Boston, between uh, 1820 and 1875 and the, their pursuit of what they called Negro citizenship and what that all entailed. And we're going to go to the opposite side and also talk about his book, uh, Ben Tillman, who uh, pitchfork Ben Tillman was a rabid uh, racist uh, from South Carolina. And we're going to look at racism in the past and white supremacy in the past and also how it's impacting us today. Thank you for that. Angela and Devin will be here on February 21st. I'll be back on February 28th with my guest, Bill Becker, author of the book, The Creek Will Rise. It is an environmental horror story. Until then, on behalf of News and Public Affairs Director Sholly Pittman, Engineer Chuck Cademan, and all of us at, here at Mass and Bookbeat, the growing family at Mass and Bookbeat, I'm Stu Levitan. Thank you so much for joining us, and thank you so much for the last two years. And now, as Ben Sidron plays us out with a little bit of Little Sherry, please stay tuned for Alex Wilding White and All Around Jazz. You're listening to WORT, 89.9 FM, Madison, listener-sponsored community radio. Yeah.